death will come to us all. This is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultram, and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. On today's episode of What About Death? I speak with Alana Cresswell and Philippa Lazenby on death, life and organ donation. So thank you for uh, joining me today. We have Philippa Lazenby, who is the donation supervisor of the Queensland Tissue Bank. And we also have Alana Cresswell, who is the community liaison person for Donate Life Queensland. So thank you so much for taking the time and coming and uh, joining me on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, <laughs> great to be here. All right. So first of all, I'm interested hearing what your first experience or first memory or first recollection of death might be. My very first recollection of death was probably when I was about four years old, I would say, and my two-year-old at the time brother frightened and squashed some baby pet mice in the door of the mouse cage. It was horrific mm. um, and I was so, I remember distinctly being so angry at him mm. as if he, you know, intentionally did what he did. Um, but yes, that's the, the first time that I can actually remember the death of any kind of living thing. And Philippa? Definitely pets. Um, we grew up in a house with about six or eight cats and the experience of death with those cats was many and varied. Sometimes they just went to sleep in the sunshine on the driveway and when we came home they were still asleep in the sunshine and other times they had what mum and dad called wheels disease, which oh. means they'd met a car. That was <laughs> mum and dad's way of, of putting it, but definitely pets. All right, so let's talk about what your roles are. So let's talk to you, Alana, first, because you are the community liaison person for Donate Life Queensland. So tell me a a bit about what that means exactly. I applied for a job which was at uh, in the cardiothoracic unit at St Vincent's in Sydney, Mm -hmm. and this is in the mid-1980s, and Dr Victor Chang had literally just started transplanting hearts. Mm -hmm. And so um, being there, in that unit seeing these patients that had just had life-saving transplants kind of opened my eyes to this whole new world. And then I spent many years working in various intensive care units um, around the country where you have people both donating as well as people going to the intensive care for close observation following their transplants. So I had exposure to both sides of this incredible equation. Mm. And then in 1999, I applied for a job which was working specifically in organ and tissue donation based here in Queensland. Some almost 22 years later, uh, I'm still here working for the same organisation. Okay, wow, that's great. Good on you. (laughs) All right, and so Philippa. So I'm one of three supervisors that work within the tissue bank. Um, We have a donation team of about 12 or 13 people. I come from a science background, I'm a medical scientist. I worked in a lot of pathology and testing laboratories across different sectors for many years and just got tired of being 
nowhere near a patient, knowing mm. that a patient was on the end of a sample, knowing that, you know, a blood film I was looking at belonged to somebody who was going through some sort of physical condition but never actually having anything to do with that person. So I moved into bone marrow transplant about 12 years ago and spent a few years there and that just opened my eyes. It got me closer to patients, closer to families, closer to people's stories, which was what I was really looking for. And then just tripped and fell sort of into finding this position at the um, at the tissue bank, something I never knew even happened. Everybody seems to know a lot about organ donation. Everyone hears about it in the media, but not too many people know as well as that is tissue donation. So mm. it was a whole new world for me. So let's talk about what the clinical process is. So let's start with you, Alana. What's the clinical process for organ donation? Um, the process probably isn't too different for both of us, but for both organ and tissue donation, the process starts with death. Mm. Actually, we actually hope it starts a long time before death in that it's really great when people have thought about what they want to happen before they actually die so that their loved ones don't have to make a decision on their behalf at that really terrible time. But just in terms of the process, generally it begins around the time of death where we are considering what somebody's end-of-life care wishes are and whether organ and tissue donation is part of those wishes. Um, so for people to donate organs, they need to have died in the intensive care unit of a hospital and on a ventilator. And almost always those people's deaths are sudden and unexpected. So we have this person who we know either has died because their brain has died or that they are in a situation where no matter what we do, what other interventions we might be able to provide, that that person is going to die. Mm. So we are having a conversation then with that person's family about, as I mentioned, end-of-life care wishes, what's important, and obviously the conversation that regardless of anything else we do, that their loved one um, is going to die. Mm. And it's at that point that we're wondering about the organ donation and so we then have some um, conversations with the person's family to try and explore um, those things that are important. And if donation is something that is in keeping with their wishes, sometimes we're having to look on the Australian Organ Donor Register because the family don't know, but maybe somebody has recorded a wish. Mm -hmm. um, and that always makes things that, that bit easier to have that confirmation that that is their wish. So once uh, we've determined that organ donation is something that is in keeping with either the patient's wish or the family's wish on their behalf, we then have to try and work out whether that person is a medically suitable donor. So that involves conducting an interview with the person's family pretty much in the same way as you would be asked similar questions if you went to the blood bank to donate blood. A lot of people have done that before, so that might be somewhat familiar. And then we need to kind of review a whole heap of other factors that surround the death. Why did the person die? What was wrong with them? Where did they die? Because all of those things influence what is able to be donated. Once we have determined that the person is a suitable donor, then we have to do some testing. We've got a test for diseases that can be transmitted through transplantation. So that's generally some blood tests. And we need to delve a little bit more into their history. Do they have anything that 
could be transmitted through transplantation. And that's basically what we're working out okay. is the risk for the transmission of disease through transplantation. The interesting thing is that you mentioned before, which I didn't know, is that organ donation comes from people who are in intensive care. So your pool, therefore, is quite narrow. You have quite a small pool of people that you can draw from. The pool is very small and um, and it's honestly for that reason that the number of donors is so small. It's not that we don't want to donate as a, as a, a nation of people, but more that we live in a great country with a terrific healthcare system mm. and that very few people actually die in the circumstances where it's possible. Mm. So every year about 80,000 people, Australians, die in hospital. And of those 80,000 people that die in our hospitals, we have the opportunity to talk with probably around about 12 or 1300 families of um, people whose death is in keeping with being able to consider donation. And so of those 12 or 1300 families, we actually end up with around about 550 organ donors per year in Australia. So very different to what most people think. Most people think that no matter where you've died, how you've died, what you've died from, that you're able to be an organ or tissue donor and honestly that couldn't be further from the truth. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I mm. had no idea. Mm. So Philippa, from your side, you're the, the tissue donation person. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell me about that. How is that different to organ donation and what's your process? So as Alana said, a lot of the screening protocols are the same. A lot of our medical assessment protocols are the same. Speaking to the family is very much the same. But our pool, if you like, is a lot bigger than what organ donation is. We in Brisbane receive notifications when somebody passes away in a Queensland health facility that we can physically reach. So we go up as far as Gympie, we go out to Toowoomba, we go down to Tweed. When somebody is registered as deceased in one of those hospitals, we receive a notification. From there, we will check the Australian Organ Donor Registry, see if they have registered an intention or a consent or even a, a decline for donation. And from there, if they're medically suitable, we'll then follow the similar process to donate life, speak to the family, bit more medical assessment, blood tests, and they will go on to become a successful donor. We can also take off and often do take offers from the community, so palliative care units, people who pass away in aged care facilities, people who pass away at home. Um, and where we receive those offers, we certainly do our very best to facilitate that. Obviously, that's in keeping with somebody's wishes and their next of kin has notified us that, you know, one of the nurses at the hospital has notified us. We attend places like Hummingbird House, the children's palliative care unit. So, yeah, we do our very best to facilitate donation wherever we can because we are different to Donate Life and we don't need that intensive care situation. So, Philippa, tell me what exactly tissue donation means. So tissue donation can be a life-saving donation in itself. The four tissues that we retrieve, corneas and sclera, so two different parts of eye tissue, heart valves obviously from the heart, skin donation which is a life-saving donation for burns patients and musculoskeletal tissue. So we're talking about long bones in the legs, meniscus in the knee, tendons around the ankle, that sort of thing. A lot of these donations go on to rebuild where there's been a cancer, where there's been breakages in bones, tendons, people who are blind, people are born with cornea dystrophies um, or whose corneas go cloudy over time, we can restore the sight of those people. 
people who can lose an eye, we can use a scleral donation from a donor eye to reconstruct a prosthesis for their eyes. So mm. a lot of it is life-changing, but obviously a skin donation for burns patients is a life-saving donation, much the same as organs. Mm. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. And so, Alana, from your side, what what are the major organs that uh, you look for? So we look for any organ that's available because there is such a, a, a demand for all of the organs. And at any one time, there's probably around about 1,600 Australians waiting for organs and around about a 1,000 of those people will be waiting for a kidney transplant. And that organ donation, in exactly the same way as Philippa mentioned, it still does happen after death. It's just that the person's circulation is being maintained because they're on a ventilator. While they're on a ventilator, that little bit in the heart called the pacemaker, while it's getting oxygen, it keeps beating and and circulating blood around the, the body, mm. even though the person may have already died because their brain has died. Mm. So when somebody's brain has died, it means that legally and medically they have died. Mm. So organ donation almost exclusively happens after death, but there are, is the odd occasion where living people can still donate an organ and you will have heard of living-related kidney donation. Yes. I should also yeah. mention that we have living donors as well. Yeah. Sounds worse than it is. <laughs> people who have a hip replacement. Oh, they yes. have no need for that hip joint anymore. It will go in the bin because it's of no use physically to them anymore. They're able to donate that to the tissue bank and we can use that as a bone graft. That's then, even if it's uh, diseased. So if somebody's having a, a hip replacement because of, say, osteoarthritis or osteoporosis, are you still able to use the tissue from that? Yep, osteoarthritis most definitely. Um, other conditions like vascular necrosis we call it where mm -hmm. there's been a lack of blood supply and the tissue has physically died, yep. um, we can't but certainly the majority of them are osteoarthritis and we can definitely make use of that. You had something else? Oh, I just wanted to um, just talk a little bit more about the process mm -hmm. because there are quite a few other steps mm -hmm. um, from once we've gotten to determining medical suitability because it's great, we've got these suitable organs or tissues um, that can be used, but then we need to find a, a new home for them to go to. So that involves then uh, having a conversation with the transplant units to work out who the recipients are that might be suitable to receive these transplants. It involves a lot of stuff on their end, getting their recipient into hospital to actually have the transplant operation. It means taking our um, organ donor to the operating theatre. And obviously, all through this process, there's a lot of conversations and communication with the family because it doesn't just happen, you know, quick as a flash. It takes us sometimes hours to organise for a donation to happen mm. because you might, might consider that we've got a donor perhaps in cans. Before we can even do anything with that donor, we've got to get some blood down from Cairns to the, our laboratory in Brisbane. So there are a lot of logistics that sit in the background. It really is a miracle that it can happen any day, to be perfectly honest. Mm, there are so many people, so many different aspects um, involved. Mm. So once we uh, have determined what organs and tissues we're planning to retrieve, we take the person to the operating theatre to have a surgical procedure done and that operation is done in exactly the same way as if any of us needed to have an operation done today. The operation occurs and then we... Uh, need to send the organs 
where they need to go to. So maybe we're sending some kidneys to somebody in Western Australia, maybe the heart's going to Victoria. So there's a whole other process in getting things to where they need to go to. But sitting behind all of that is the care of the family. So that's uh, the next thing I guess that I'm really interested in is in terms of the emotional component because it must be very difficult for families who are trying to find that balance between the loss of a loved one versus the the purpose and meaning behind organ donation for somebody to continue a life. Uh, how do you, from both of your perspectives, I'm interested in how it is that you work with that intersect between life, death and hope? Well, I guess we're never usually having conversations about organ or tissue donation until we have reached the point of no hope. And the fact that we're able to offer organ or tissue donation kind of brings a little bit of hope back into that conversation because when there's no hope left for the person that's died, potentially then there is some hope for some other people who need transplants. Mm. And so it's um, having that conversation about what was important to that person. So obviously if you've already talked about it, there's a registration on the Australian Organ Donor Register it's not a big decision for the family to make them. They know what their loved one wanted. It's simply a matter of carrying out their known wish. Mm. It's a hellishly difficult con- um, conversation or thing to think about when you've never talked about it before and you yes. have no idea what that person would have wanted. Mm. So sometimes that's having a conversation with the, the family about, well, how, how did that person live their life? Were they always the one putting their hand up to help at this or do that? So, you know, that's not a decision for us to make. It's mm-hmm. a decision for the family to make. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we have to help them work their way, work through, their way through that decision-making process. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of other things uh, for families. Often it is the only good thing to come from the death, the fact that somebody is able to donate and to help other people. Mm-hmm. Families often feel a, a real sense of pride that their loved one was able to do something so incredible for, you know, it's rarely just one person. Often there are multiple people benefiting from one person's donation. Sometimes it might be up to 30, 40, 50 people that can benefit from one organ and tissue donation. Mm -hmm. I guess that's, uh, that's the intersect between when somebody's life is over handing it over, you know, in in some kind of way to somebody else to live a better life or a better quality of life, life itself. Mm -hmm. And it's not just that person that receives the transplant. Around that person is an entire family, Mm -hmm. an entire community that then obviously have their lives changed as well because they're no longer the sick person in the bed or the carer of that person. Mm. They are now well out there enjoying life, going on a picnic, going on holidays, getting a job, paying tax. Living, um, a, living, living a, a more normal existence. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it, it's very far-reaching and probably the most precious gift that anybody could ever give or ever receive. Mm. 
Lovely. Okay, so Philippa. Alana's absolutely summed it up beautifully, (laughs) I think. So your experience is similar. Very much so, very much so. Our circumstances are different in that we have 24 hours after somebody has passed for tissue donation to happen. So if you can imagine if somebody was to pass away in a palliative care unit in the morning, we obviously give that family time. We have that time to assess them, make sure they're suitable. By the time we speak to the family, we're already into that time. So we are approaching them in a very acute grief phase. It's a question that comes out of the blue from us on a phone call. It's probably might not have been something they've ever considered. On the other hand, we've had people answer the phone and burst into tears. Oh, my God, absolutely, yes, you know. Um, so it can sort of go either way and sometimes you think to yourself, you know, if we just had some more time to let them think, if they could call us back in a week, they might think differently if, to saying no. But um, I think overwhelmingly, like Alana said, if they don't know what their wishes were, the comments that I hear are, oh, they were always such a giving person. They'd give mm. you the shirt off their back. They'd be the first person to jump in and volunteer. So, that, so they would love that. That would just be wonderful. Mm. On the flip side, if they're going to decline donation, they'll say that very quickly. No, I don't think that's what they wanted. No, they definitely told me that wasn't what they wanted. Maybe they have an hour or two to think about it. We always allow time for our families to think and discuss it together because we want them to make that enduring decision together. They may initially be very on board. You may call them back a little later and someone in the family has said, no, I just can't do it, Mm. and that's fine. Obviously concerns about how the person will look after donations happened. You can imagine, as I say, taking bones from legs and things like that, reassuring them that they can still have viewings, they'll still able to be able to see their loved one afterwards and have them look exactly the same as they did before and very peaceful. So addressing those sort of concerns as well. So our timeframes are a little bit shorter. Our process is a little different, but I think from a family perspective, it is that overwhelming, I'm doing something good for someone else. Mm. And one letter from a family that sticks in my mind that was addressed to one of my colleagues said thank you so much for bringing me some sunshine on my darkest day and you just think if if you can do that for somebody and because we we have like Alana talks about these very sudden deaths we see the sudden deaths that are not able to become organ donors so we see car accidents where they've Mm. passed away at the scene we see suicides that Mm. sort of thing where they've not come to hospital they don't have that opportunity to be an organ donor so we still see that and that obviously so difficult for a family short time frame it's hard for them to make that decision but sometimes when they do it really is just like that little bit of light coming through the clouds on that day Mm. they didn't see this coming that morning but they've now got this wonderful gift that they can give Mm. yeah so when you're seeing people recognize that they can that this can be of benefit to others do you think that that has an influence on how they actually view death do they does it sort of make them um a little more relaxed perhaps not less sad i'm not you know not in terms of that but uh just in terms of their perspective of what death is and I mean how do you see that in in terms of the people that you're working with whether it's the donor or the the recipient Mm. I think I've seen two sort of both ends of the spectrum I've had people answer the phone hear where I'm calling from and what I'm calling about and oh absolutely overwhelmingly yes and in the next breath 
have broken down completely and just said, I just can't, I just can't, I just can't. Mm. And then you've had other people who have answered the phone. They're very wary. They're not sure who you are or why you're calling them. And once you've explained, you can hear the change in their voice as if if you were looking at them, you'd be able to see the, their face change mm. and you hear that tone of voice change and they're, oh, oh, they love that. Yeah. So I think... Yeah. I don't know how to articulate how that would change their view of death, but whether it is giving that a little bit of meaning or a little bit of endurance, a little peace living on, mm. helping another human being, making a huge difference in someone's life, there's that little light that goes off and just goes, wow. Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe they've never heard of it before. Maybe they've never had the discussion, but when they hear it, oh, wow. You know, mm. yes, let's, let's do that. And then at the end of conversations, once we've processed everything to have that thank you. Thank you. That they just love this. Thank you so much. Mm. Excellent. And Alana, is that a similar experience for you? Yeah, I would say it's fairly similar. And um, you know, having rung hundreds of families over the years, by and large, they are waiting there just for you to call to let them know how many organs were able to be donated, or just that little bit of information that we might be able to give about the recipient, because it is the most amazing thing and the only good thing that has happened as a result of their their mm. loved one's death. And so, um, you know, I guess I'm lucky because in my role, you know, I've done all of the jobs in donation over the years, coordinated, been a little bit on the recipient side. But these days I work primarily with transplant recipients because uh, they want to help us get the word out there in the community. So it's quite amazing to work with People, for example, one lady, she's had her kidney transplant for 42 years. Wow. 42 <laughs> years. That's when we actually first pretty much started doing them. It's allowed her to go on and have her own family. She's now got grandchildren. She's worked her whole life to be mixing it with these people that have had incredible lives because of the amazing gifts that have been given to them. Mm. Um, Puts a value on death, doesn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. You know, it doesn't make death a meaningless thing. It, the inevitability, death is inevitable, so it just puts this value on it for yeah. um, for others. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess because also a, most of, you know, I've dealt with a lot of death in my working life, but it's all been you know, sudden and unexpected. And I, I guess that's the thing is people often don't think about it, mm. their death, Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And if there's one thing I wish everybody would do is think about it yeah. so somebody else doesn't have to mm. when something sudden and unexpected happens. Yes. Um, because I can tell you there is a bit of sudden and unexpected out there yes, <laughs> in the world. Um, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I'm interested then um, – in terms of uh, Philippa, how your work has influenced your view of death? How has that changed based on the, the work that you've done and your experience engaging with people in this type of work? It's interesting for me and talking to you earlier um, where you said death is a fascinating thing. Mm. I think death is a fascinating thing <laughs> and I think I've just been very lucky to end up in the role that I have where I'm I'm close to death every day. Like I say, Alana, I've seen a lot of death and a lot of different types of death. I think talking to Alana on the way here, my inner hippie like to believe that we are all these magical beings, this incredible mystical glitter thrown insides. But when I first got to see tissue retrieval, you just realise we are all the same mm. and when we go, we are gone mm. and we are just a shell 
it's a very valuable shell for other people in terms of donation and transplantation, but we really are just a shell. And that was, that hit me quite hard. So, so much the same. And when it's, when it stops, it stops. Mm. And I think seeing death physically there in front of me, it's, you know, they're gone. Mm. But the, pride that I have and the privilege that it is to be in that space at that time yeah. is so important to mm. me and to be able to say to a family I'll be the one going to see your loved one and I will look after them as though they were my own family mm. and to be able to go and do that is far and away one of the best things about my job. Mm, lovely. So that, that <laughs> taking care of them before their passage to wherever they go from there yeah. is a huge privilege. Yeah. So, Alana, what about you? How has your work influenced your view of death? Both my work and my personal experience of death is all very medicalised. Is it? <laughs> um, funny that. So, you know, obviously hundreds of people's deaths I've been part of yeah. um, as an intensive care nurse and uh, as an organ donation coordinator. I don't think I ever had an inner hippie. I've always been the, you know, you're alive and then you're dead. Yep. There may be a small part in between where you're not quite dead or not quite alive. Because I suppose of the medicalization of my experience of these deaths, they've all been good. Mm. People have been filled up to the eyeballs with all the good drugs. They've had people there caring for them. Yes. They've been surrounded by the people that love them. Yes. If they haven't been there surrounded by the people that love them, I've been there to be that surrogate person. Personally, you live, you die, That's get burned, <laughs> get buried, whatever you, your gig is. Yep. Next. Yeah. Yep. No, fair enough. Fair enough. No, 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 it's all good. I mean, for me, again, this is part of the joy of the conversation, you know, is just finding out what people's perspectives are and then how that's been influenced. You know, what is your perspective today? So clearly your work has had a great influence on on how you view death right right at this point in time yeah having seen lots of last chapters of people starting the next chapter for somebody else is amazing yes. because that's pretty much what organ and tissue donation is somebody's yes. last chapter you've just closed the book but somebody else is just starting to write their first chapter yes. potentially so opening opening the door for great possibilities mm. correct yeah. yeah so then uh as we draw this to a close today what is um if somebody's interested in organ donation what's the process if somebody wants to find out more information or wants to in fact you know register for organ donation what do they need to do well, just in terms of uh, finding out information, they can uh, jump on the Donate Life website. So that's donatelife.gov.au and there's lots of information, stories on organ donation, tissue donation, all kinds of things. If somebody has uh, specific information that they would like, you know, like whether they can donate because of a specific condition or they've got, they can call and speak to me. Um, so if you just rang the PA hospital switchboard and ask for Donate Life, you'll get put through to the right place. Excellent. Just in terms of registering your decision about organ donation, and that's the most important thing you can do aside from the conversation, you can register again on the Donate Life website. You'll just need your Medicare number. Um, you can register through your MyGov accounts as well. 
the biggest thing I'd like to put out there is don't think you can't be a donor because you have diabetes, because you have osteoarthritis, because you have a lung problem or a heart problem. You know, you would be astounded at the people who are medically suitable to become, especially tissue donors, not so much organ donors, but especially tissue donors, and who can make a huge difference despite the fact that they have a lot of health conditions. So. Don't ever be afraid to ask. Um, as I say, we receive a lot of phone calls from people who just want to arrange things, you mm-hmm. know, who might be in perfectly good health but just want to, you know, make sure that their ducks are in a row for, and as you say, having those conversations. Mm-hmm. Make sure everything's, you know, worked out for when that time comes. We've had people who have just received terminal diagnosis and who have rung us and have been adamant, you know, I want to donate whatever I can. Mm. The Queensland Tissue Bank, we always have someone available 24-7. If someone is in a position where someone has passed away, if they're medical staff at a hospital or a hospice or aged care or even at home, and you'd like to see if we can facilitate that, our number is 3121-2626 and we're happy to speak to you anytime. How do you encourage people to have the conversation? People are so afraid of talking about death and talking, you know, about that, the fact that, you know, that's not going to happen to me. Mm. So what do you do to encourage people to think about, um, the fact that at some point in their life, they are inevitably going to die and that this might, might be a path that they could choose to follow to, you know, to offer their don- donations? What would you suggest? Uh, in all honesty, um, if you ask me to look across the different demographics, I could tell you that the young people, they're not even thinking about this stuff yet. Death mm. is a long way off. Mm. But however, if you can engage them with the subject, they're very interested in it. And of course, why wouldn't you is typically their sort of attitude. Men from their mid-20s to about their mid-50s, They're too busy working, earning the income. They don't make those kind of decisions. But if something happened to them, they'd probably be equally happy to decide to donate. Mm. They just haven't thought about it, talked about it, whatever yet until they get to retirement age and then they register and have the same conversations at the same rate as everybody else does. Mm -hmm. So Mm. women, by and large, we're all over it. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I would just, in all honesty, Think about it, talk about it, make a decision, register your decision so that you relieve the burden from anybody else in having to make that decision for you. You've done all those things. They're not making a decision. They're literally carrying out your wishes. Uh, So I guess it is just, you know, encouraging people to open up the conversation just to know that time of death could be any moment Mm. now, really. Yeah. It's just becoming a bit more normal and that's that's the thing that we want is that it's something that everybody thinks about and makes a decision about. Yes, I understand. It, it, it's really is the ad hoc kind of random conversations that you have when you're at a wedding and somebody asks you what you do for a job mm. and you sort of think, oh, we're at the dinner table, I don't know. But no, they're fascinated. Yeah. You know, you have these chats about what happened at work, yeah. things like that. And you still get people like, oh, don't want to know. But um, All right. Well, look, um, I really want to uh, thank you so much for your time and your insights and uh, your perspective today. So thank you so much for coming over to Karuna um, and talking about uh, your uh, roles in tissue and organ donation. So thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. It's been terrific. (laughs) Thank you. Please join me next time when I speak with Dr. Patrick Stokes from Deakin University in Melbourne, who shares his view on death from a philosophical perspective and through the lens of personal identity. 
I'm Siltram, and this is What About Death, an initiative of karuna.org.au. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. If you like this episode, be sure to follow, subscribe, and give us a 5-star rating. We'll be posting new episodes every two weeks, so there's more to look forward to.